0: Hi, I'm Gigi McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Cozer, And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who.
1: Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't.
0: We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen. And remember, keep talking who. They all say who.
2: Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the pinnacle American editions for all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child, but can't remember the name?
0: Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later
1: than you should have, or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age.
2: You know, one person's trash is another's treasure—something like that. Each episode hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video. Junkyard Podcast. You
1: are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening.
0: This is John Leeson, and I play K-9 on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory.
2: (laughs) Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the subterranean task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because sub yeah. My name is Tony Witt, and today, laboring beneath the surface of the Target range, we have a three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me... Today we welcome back to the podcast two guests who know a bit about Digging in the Dirt for the Good Stuff. The first one being the glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Hello. We also welcome back the host of the excellent Talking Who to You podcast, our miner from across the ocean, J.G. McCrory. Hello, J.G. Hello, Tony. And when we say miner, we don't mean underage. We mean that Digging in the Earth, all of that goings on. So there you are. GG. before we head further into our little spiel, tell us a little bit more about your podcast.
0: We are Talking Who To You, and we discuss the big Finnish audios. We've covered everything from the very start of the 8th Doctor Adventures right back at Star Warning, right up to the most recent stuff with Christopher Eccles' Return to the Range. So we have been doing that for the last three or four years, and we just love talking about audio plays. So we, we keep ourselves busy, we keep ourselves entertained, and hopefully we keep you entertained as well.
2: Yes. So, by the way, if you hear background noises during this podcast, it is because here in Chicago there is an air show going on, and it's closer down to where Jenny lives. And if you hear noise in my background, it's because my air conditioning is on, because it is currently 85 degrees in Chicago, which is 29.4 Celsius Celsius. For the rest of y'all in the free world? Yeah, it's a bit warm, so I'm not turning off my air conditioning.
1: Yeah, I don't know what us Americans would do if we didn't fly around our big dick planes and stare at them with our monkey mouths (laughs) wide open, being like, woo, yeah, um, because, you know, I guess that's important to us. So our apologies.
2: All while enjoying our air conditioning. Exactly.
1: I turned mine off, but I think that I'm in a better situation than you are, Tony, because I'm not in a tall building. You know, we're on the first floor. So I can- This is true. This is I'm sweating it out for all of you.
2: <laughs> and we appreciate that. If you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine why, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you send them off into space to a planet 100,000 years away. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons. Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Berry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Weck, Stephen Pickering, Jane Sumnall, Dave Davis, Guy Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you all.
1: Thank you. Whew.
2: That is hard to say in one breath. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7k maspr in fact we expect you to we continue now discussing tom baker's fourth season and our season of all terence dicks all the time all dicks all the time with terence dicks novelization of underworld without further ado here are some fast facts Doctor Who and the other world adapted by Terence Sticks from the script by Bob Baker and Dave Martin that aired from 1778 to 12878, published by Target Books in January 1980. As of this recording in August of 2021, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 123 pages. Now, this is one of those times that we see the usual target naming convention of Doctor Who and the runs into a bit of a problem. Before this story, there were very few titles of stories that didn't lend themselves well to that construction, but Underworld is one of only a tiny amount of stories from before the 1980s that was a one-word title. They became a little more frequent in the 80s. If the situation came up in the 70s, which happened very rarely, the editors had no problem changing the title, even when the original title would have fit. Thus, Robot, also by Terrence Dix, becomes Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, and so on. In the 1980s, as we've seen with previous books we've read, the editors got around this by using a hyphen between the character name and the name of the story. But as of January 1980, they hadn't started doing this yet. This is just a guess, but the problem probably came to a head when they got to the 1981 story Warrior's Gate, which they novelized as Doctor Who and Warrior's Gate, which just sounds terrible. With Full Circle, they would adopt the hyphen. Only going back to the previous construction when they could, which means that the last book we read, Doctor Who and the Sunmakers, was the last book to use the and the construction. Anyway, this is all stimulating, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. You may have noticed that I'm doing my best to avoid talking about the actual televised story because, frankly, it's a bit embarrassing. It's fairly obvious from reading the book that the writers were directed by new script editor Anthony Reed to plumb Greek mythology for inspiration, which they did. That's not the embarrassing part. New producer Graham Williams had been given two mandates by the higher-ups at the BBC to lighten the stories in tone, which he did, and to cut down on production costs, which he struggled with. He'd budgeted for only two sets for this story, the P7E, which could be used both for Jackson's ship and for the Citadel, and for the Caverns. After he returned from a two-week vacation, he was told that the budget for the sets would be three times what was originally estimated. He decided to take the risk of abandoning the cavern sets and instead used smaller models. Which the live action would then be keyed into using chroma key, also known as CSO, but colloquially known as green screen. Although it was meant to save money, it resulted in overruns on the recording because every shot had to be lined up precisely with the live action to make them work with the models. That, and to be frank, it looks awful. Luckily, none of this comes across in the book. It may have been for these reasons and her ongoing tensions with Tom Baker that Louise Jameson told Williams she would be leaving at the end of the season. Williams started planning on creating a new companion, but held off on having her departure written into the next script just in case he could convince her otherwise, and that would cause its own problems, as we will see next time. The agent of the actress playing Tala began telling the press that she was being considered for the next companion, which was never the case. Given that she had a severe allergic reaction to her old age makeup in episode one that required her to be seen by a doctor, maybe that it should have been the case just to make up for it? Who knows? Anyway, JG, as we normally do, we like to have our guest read the back cover for us, so would you mind doing that for us?
0: It would be my privilege I'm sorry I had a spontaneous groan when you mentioned the CSO, by the way, but really, I I just couldn't keep it in any longer. It It is terrible. It's it's just a reflex, you know? Anyway, okay, fine. So, underworld. Exploring the very edge of the known universe, the Doctor, Leela and and K9 discover a group of astronauts searching for the lost gene bank of Minion Race. During the perilous voyage, the astronaut's craft plunges into the heart of a recently formed planet, wherein an awesome secret is held. How will the minion quest end? What must the Doctor wrest from the heart of the Oracle?
2: Of all of our dramatic readings, that may be one of the most dramatic ones we've had. Thank you for that.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, it's not easy to inject life into Underworld, so you have to take what you can get. No.
2: <laughs> this is actually quite true. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Jenny, when I first forwarded this book to you, what was your first impressions of it?
1: Oh gosh, I mean, when you first forwarded it to me, I said, okay, here's another one. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all I, I really react. More
2: dicks for Jenny. <laughs> but uh,
1: Of course, I am always pleased to read things by Terrence Dix because I find him to be the best writer that... Uh, of the things, at least, that, that I've read for the show.
2: Oh, that's it. Yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, JG, in your case, it's kind of different, obviously, because I want to ask you did you see the story first, or did you read the book first when you were young? I
0: read the book first. Um, I actually have, I've, firstly, I should admit that I've volunteered for this one. So for my sins And uh, it's really just because I'm hoping That if I suffer during this one You'll let me come back for something decent Like Legopolis or (laughs) Alpha. That's the real reason behind it But uh, it's just uh, Yeah, I I remember We had this in the school library When I was was but a time taught And I remember reading it And one of the overriding memories I have of this book I must have been eight or something like that I suppose fairly young And it's the word chameleon which I didn't, I didn't know, and so I didn't know how to pronounce it. So in my head, it's still, to this day, when I read the word chameleon, I kind of still go, Chameleon? Because I yeah. just didn't know the word when <laughs> I was eight years of age. So that's kind of my overriding memory of this book, and that terrible, terrible cover where oh, Tom yes. Baker looks like somebody stuck a finger up his arse, and... and <laughs>
2: And not in a good way. <laughs>
0: Definitely not in a good way. Um, two young men appear to be having a nice moment just off camera. It's really, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's I mean, like you know, target book covers are, are uh, a, a strange art in and of themselves. But this is this is not a not a highlight by any stretch of the imagination. So that's my original memory of the book. Is yeah, reading it when I when I was very very young.
2: Yeah, this season. Seems to be some of the worst covers that we will have had. Next season is going to be even worse, obviously, but we're not there yet, thank God.
1: And that's very sad because I actually was not offended by this cover. I mean, for really? once, like the people look like people. I other times it's <laughs> not even work
0: out what species they belong to, which is a step yeah, in the right direction. Yeah, it's not even resembling
1: reality. Um, although I was kind of baffled as to why they choose to put. Tala and I forget who it is that that carries her out. Maybe it's Herrick um, after he's been pacified. Like, why this moment? There's so many other more interesting things that they could have chosen for the cover. And I can't get out of my head too how much their spacesuits look like still suits from Dune. Oh, I am. Yes. It's very Dune-esque. Uh, although that would would have yet to be rendered to film some years from from I think, now. To be fair,
0: I think Dune is underworld-esque. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's there. There are some parallels, but what what sci-fi does not have parallels to do, I suppose. But yeah, I wasn't I wasn't super mad at this cover. Not not as bad as what was the the. <laughs> I'll always think back to this one is the worst that I ever read. The the one with the plants and like the steam and the swords and oh. the guns, like whatever that Seeds one was. Seeds of Doom. Thank you, Seeds of Doom. That's that's my favorite slash least favorite cover, because you just yeah. look at this and you're like, what the fuck is going to happen and then you're like oh yeah it, it was as bad as i thought it would be okay that story is insane
2: <laughs> and yet the story wasn't now that that's interesting because before we started recording jenny admitted to us that she rather liked the story but she of course has not seen it and seen it multiple times in the way that jg and i have and have reviled it for decades now <laughs> decades. Um, <laughs> yes it's literally true So where do we start with this one?
1: I can kind of put a question. One thing that I noticed, at least for the first half, I will say, um, is how straightforward and streamlined the narrative is compared to a lot of other Doctor Who books that I've read, where you're doing a lot of flashing from one set of characters to another and this person to that person. And it was all pretty on the, the ship, you know, until about halfway through when they get to the planet, and then you're starting to move around a little bit between the Doctor and Leela and Idis, then the, the the evil minions, like, jumping around between those. And at times, like, it went so fast. I have in my notes just chapters where I didn't even make a note, because it was right. just a fast read. And I kind of like that, but then there was another part of me thinking that maybe there should have been more. Like, I have more notes for the Sunmakers, which I really enjoyed. And I wondered what you each thought of that. Is this too breezy? It, should it have had more?
2: Well, I don't think it would have been a good idea for Dix to have tried to expand on what was there. As it is, he kind of is expanding on what's there because the plot of the story could be written on the back of the postage
1: uh, stamp. Yeah.
2: But... But I also had the same impression. I have a single note for chapter five, and it is the question, how is it that the only note I feel like making about this chapter is penetration? You have penetration.
0: (laughs) I I think I can answer that question. (laughs) Yes, please. just sort of following up on that like uh, for all that i was being a little bit flippant before about why i i decided to volunteer for for underworld but um like i also quite like i'm very influenced by the idea of um redemptive readings and and sort of taking something which is kind of reviled and and just you know, really look down on, and trying to find, like, little grains of, of sort of quality in it. And there are a few stories which are either as reviled or simply dismissed as, as underworld in, in, in terms of television Doctor Who. So it is quite interesting to come across the book and, and, and attempt to come at it with fresh eyes. I mean, it is derivative, but derivative has never been a particular barrier to good Doctor Who. And no. I think uh, I think as far as this book goes, I mean, I I lean on the side that I uh, um, how can I put this politely? Um, I don't know that it's the most engaged book that Terence Dix has ever written. It, hmm. it, like breezy is one word for it, but kind of half arsed is also another. Um, <laughs> and like that, no, I know I'm being slightly harsh when I say that, but it's also I don't know it. It feels a little bit more kind of workaday than, than his better efforts. And, and I realise some of that is the story, which is just, you know, it's not the worst Doctor Who story ever, but it's, you know, you know, it's Jason and the Golden Fleece. It's not, you know, it's not nudging up against originality. Um, but I just feel that he could have, it needs a little bit of juice somewhere. And it, it's, I don't know, uh, it feels a little bit half-hearted to me.
2: Well, you're, you're not being harsh at all, J.G. I mean, on this program, harsh is our middle name. Parents had a damn weird sense of humor. But yeah, it it does feel like it's not his best effort. And I know what part of that is. Terrence Dix, as we've said in previous podcasts, takes a lot of care when he adapts the work of writers such as, say, Robert Holmes. When it comes to Bob Baker and Dave Martin scripts, He doesn't take nearly as much care, (laughs) because... Why would that be? Yes, he's well aware of the limitations of their scripts, having script-edited two of their scripts previously. He knows that they have a tendency to write well above the budgetary concerns of the show, which is part of the reason why the novelization of The Invisible Enemy, which they also wrote, is not quite the best... (laughs) It's not quite the best novelization, even though he has a little bit more to work with there. That being said, you notice that this book has a prologue, and the prologue is really quite good, because it expands on all of the history between the Time Lords and the Minions. And the explanation that we get about the Minions basically comes through Tom Baker's dialogue on screen, and it's very brief. So he does give us a lot more with the prologue, especially with lines like, with the best possible intentions, they decided to play God. But enough about Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, it's it's got that lovely mythological feel to it. And he even echoes the language of Abraham Lincoln at one point, which is just bizarre to me. And yet it works really quite well. That intro does... A lot more with this story than to be frank, it really deserves to be done with.
1: yeah, I agree. And I think Dix, it just in general is great with introductions. He just whips them out um, haha. and they're they're so good. like they're so fast, they're so um expansive. And especially for a reader like me who doesn't actually have a lot of the narrative canon down, um, it, it explains important things briefly, and I'm like, oh, okay, cool, this is interesting to know. And it happens twice. He, I kind of can't believe that Terrence Dix is like, oh, okay, I'm just going to introduce like a new race and a new like brief history, kind of in the middle of this narrative as a midpoint twist, and introduce these new characters the the mom and the sisters getting crushed and i was actually sad i was like wait i just met oh. these people like th- a paragraph ago and i feel legitimately bad for <laughs> this little family and i thought it was well done i'm like good job uh, he really knows how to do an intro
2: yeah and you really don't feel that sort of emotional warmth at all <laughs> on screen because I, I have to say that I find Edas and his father to be two of the least engaging side characters in Doctor Who. I really couldn't give two shits about what happens to them when I watch the show. Here, there is a little bit more emotional investiture, which is good. But I I think that's more a function of just how badly put together the story is on screen rather than any deficits of the script itself, to be
1: honest. I can accept that. I think the the lines about then may the sky fall on you and the sky (laughs) on your families and the poor son, father, no, the guards are going to hear and and sobbing my children i mean i'm the generation that grew up on the fourth harry potter movie where you have fucking oh. cedric's dad saying no my boy my boy and you're like just <laughs> fucking stabbed in the chest so anything that reminds me of that is sort of like more emotionally impactful probably than it might be
0: otherwise <laughs> I, I think you're doing a massive kindness to underworld by associating it in that kind of way
1: you have to understand i am not a massively kind person when it comes to literature. You I have to And yet, I'm very fond of Dix. I can tell that he, like, in general, his baseline of giving a shit is much higher than most of the other authors for these books. But I do agree (laughs) that, like, this one, yeah, maybe he had, like, something else going on at the same time. Like, I, I do, I agree with that assessment, JG, about just a less engagement. Um, I think that that might be accurate.
0: I think part of the reason that I think the book feels less engaged is because I do kind of agree with both of you in terms of the prologue. I think that's a really good way of him getting a lot of the exposition kind of soaked out of the, the, the sort of ongoing narrative. So rather than having people, you know, as, as the story goes along, just standing around explaining oh so this is our history yes this is our history Uh. to each other it's just kind of condensed into those few pages at the start of the book and that's a good way of just getting that out of the way and obviously it's not something which is is reflected in the in the tv episodes so i kind of like that and i do like that's the bit he feels like he's engaged and i think it's probably because the prologue it's actually pretty good that the rest of the book kind of feels a little bit more kind of workaday. It's not bad. It's I've read many, many, many worse Doctor Who's books than this. But it just feels a little bit workaday compared to that introduction. And, and, and the prologue, it does do a good job of kind of establishing the mood. It is quite grandiose it's got a, a slightly it's not really looking down from Olympus <laughs> it's barely looking down from Mount Snowden but it's you know it's got that slight <laughs> um, it's got that slight sense of grandeur about it like what you're gonna read what's been set up here has got purpose and drama and all this kind of stuff going on it, it doesn't but the prologue really works hard
1: to make you think that it might. <laughs> well, and I'm similarly <laughs> impressed by this whole sacrifice ritual. I, mm. I don't know who came up with all of this, but no one had to. You know, is the time right? The time is right. Is the slave ready? The slave is ready. And those who watch, they are filled with fear. Like, it's kind of good. I, I've heard worse. I've, yeah, <laughs> we've had like multi-billion dollar movies with much worse ritual dialogue than this. I kind of wish that it would have all lasted longer, because I think he did pretty good. And maybe I'm just not understanding. I'm like, is this, like, how big of a sword is it? Because you'd have to have a really heavy sword for it to just drop from a silken cord enough to, like, stab someone and not just kind of bounce off of their breastplate. And yet the doctor is able to just kind of pick it up and have at it later on. I was a little confused about Mm -hmm. that, but... That's yeah. Worse things have gone by me in in Doctor Who novels, so I was was okay with not understanding completely.
2: And I'm so glad you brought that up because as they're descending the you know tree at the end of the world or whatever it is and going down into the citadel, Leela has a line about how complicated the ritual yeah, sounds. Yeah. And the Doctor answers his back and says, "Well, you should talk. You come from a tribe where they had the." test of the horda and that bit is not on screen and it is a very good criticism as a matter of fact i was thinking it just before dicks put that in because yeah it's insanely complicated and just like the test of the horda it doesn't make any goddamn sense the physics don't work there's no way that that should work at all in fact as you said it would it would literally just bounce off the sternum it may give a, them a little bit of a gas yeah
1: you'd have like a flesh
2: wound but you'd be fine Yeah, but it wouldn't <laughs> kill them by any means
0: my my feeling is if we're criticizing physics in underworld <laughs> yes i'm not sure the falling of a sword is the hill that we want to die on here i feel there might be other no. examples of bad physics that we can point to which might have slightly more sway
2: well, yes. <laughs> I, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to delay getting into those.
0: <laughs> I, I understand that impulse. Believe me. <laughs>
1: But that's the kind of stuff that I let go. I'm like, oh, whatever. They're going to the center of a nebula. Okay, that's fine. Like, I don't, if I have to accept time lords in general, I'm okay with bending the laws of physics. But, like, at least get your specific narrative death devices correct. I don't know. Then I'm like, I want this to be a little better. <laughs> I have to let okay. go all of the other stuff, you know. It's like Star Trek episodes where they're like, oh, yes, we just transmogrified the warp modulator. And you're like, yeah, that works. Like, And it's like, that fucking doesn't mean anything. Like, <laughs> We just beeped, booped some lights but you accept all of that because it's just part of the the canon the show is established for itself so in this i'm like i expected it to maybe make a little more sense because usually these things do sort Mm -hmm.
0: of bob baker and dave martin scripts well known for making sense oh god that's for listen i have to say i have to say even it's a slight diversion from what we're talking about but this is not the worst even on screen this is not the worst
2: no, oh, um, it's not the okay. Baker
0: Martin script. It just isn't. Like the Mutants is a lot worse than this. This is true. And and Invisible Enemy is much worse than this. So even oh. although this is you know very thinly reskinned like Greek mythology or whatever, it basically hangs together as a story. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. If you put aside you know soft planets and and all that kind of stuff it more or less makes sense so um for all that i am going to absolutely spend the rest of this podcast absolutely ripping the piss out of this it is not in any (laughs) way shape or form the worst story that they have put together
2: no no it really isn't they're far far worse and for that matter we have on this program torn apart the novelizations for the mutants and for the invisible enemy because we saw through those problems (laughs) Yeah, and there's no way of getting around them on the page, whereas at least Dix is trying to get around some of the worst issues with this story. Yeah, I I have my specifics that I want to get into.
1: Yeah, I'd be curious to hear what some of those are.
2: Yeah, but let's do the positives first, because we usually get pilloried for being too harsh, and... That strikes me as bizarre, given that this is a story that most Doctor Who fans would be very harsh with. But what else did we like about this book? If anything. (laughs) That's a telling silence. (laughs) No, no, no.
1: I think there's some nice Leela-isms. Tony, you pointed one of them out about her being like, that sounds like a complicated death ritual. I I always (laughs) enjoy the way that the companion is used to sort of stand in for the reader's reaction to be a little bit meta. And I think that Leela as a character does that really well since not only is she the companion, but she's sort of the quote-unquote primitive and is coming from even farther than, than we, the reader, would be. So... When she comments on even a punishment seeming complicated, I think it's kind of funny. Uh, and there, I really like the part too where the sun is like, "Oh, that's not the sky," and she's like, "It's the roof." <laughs> like, the, the text told me to that she said it pityingly, but I didn't hear her say it pityingly. I heard her say it like incredulously or slightly sassily, and that's how I'm gonna gonna keep it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Leela continues to be a lot of fun. I'm glad they didn't keep her pacified too long in the beginning because that was weird oh, right. and it and it just kind of ruins the best things of her character so I enjoyed that um in this good more, more Lila is good
2: yeah I would agree this is not the best Lila story but it's still a very good one and as usual Louise Jameson is wonderful but also the characterizations good and I'm glad you brought that up As you did, Jenny, about the fact that she is also from a primitive society that has degenerated over generations, the same way that the Minyans and the P7e have, and have become these, well, the Trogs essentially. And come to think of it, I hadn't even thought about that, this is a version of Face of Evil, because you do have a society that's degenerated over the course of generations. It's split into two. You have one group of people who are technologically oriented and have made it into a religion. And you have the underlings, the trogs, who are to some degree much more primitive, but both of them have established mythologies around what is actually true about their world. So unfortunately that doesn't come out in the script that much and it doesn't come out in the book that much so it's something we bring to it what else
0: one of the other things I like about Leela's characterization here is that they're not doing the Eliza Doolittle thing, which is not my favourite characterization of Leela. She's kind of allowed to just be her own person here without being this um, slight cipher, and I know that's not necessarily the most popular view of Leela, but I really like it when she's just written straightforwardly as the character, rather than, you know, oh, the Doctor takes her somewhere to teach her something, or whatever. I, I, I've never been a really big fan of that approach to Leela, so I do really like the fact that she's just allowed to stand and she has her own little smart moments where she can do her own thing or she understands the world a little bit better because, you know, she's travelled with the Doctor or she has a bit more experience than, than the people stuck in this kind of benighted existence in the caves or whatever. So I, I do kind of like that and I have to give credit, I suppose, to Bob Baker and Dave Martin for that. That's that's, that's also true of the original um, and it's something that carries over into Dix's novelization. So I think that works quite well beyond that um <laughs> uh, there must be something
1: i will agree with what you said about Leela as a character being allowed to be herself there's a moment now they mentioned that well, the doctor had taught Leela science and then she's able to understand like a little bit more than maybe we otherwise assumed she would have and mm-hmm. i think that's a good example of that that the the narrative lets her not be a complete idiot that it's assumed. Oh yeah, she's been traveling around with the doctors. She absorbs things. It actually shows her to be quite smart in this very kind of bewildering. What what would otherwise be a an overwhelming experience for her, she's able to pick things up really quickly and put them together. Maybe in ways that we wouldn't expect her to. The one place that slips is right in the beginning, which is just not a big deal, but it still kind of sticks out that when they're describing Leela, she was tall and strong. She wore a brief animal skin costume. And I'm like, well, it's not a costume. It's just her clothes. They should just say that she (laughs) wore animal skins, right? Like, I don't know why we called it a costume. That was a little odd. But otherwise, yeah, it's she's completely natural in this world.
2: Yeah, that's a stock description of Leela. Right, right down to the word brief. He always describes that costume as a costume he always calls it brief it's It's... not a
1: costume it's so weird (laughs) what we wouldn't say that the doctors wearing a
2: costume (laughs) i think we would
0: (laughs) i definitely think we would yes (laughs)
2: yes
1: <laughs> well he says but it's a scarf he doesn't say his costume complete with signature scarf like it's not you
0: know right <laughs> that's, that's a bit wordy for terence dicks to be fair but i don't know i I kind of i like that like i, I said before that the uh, sort of the prologue was the good bit and that's why the rest of the book feels a little bit flat next to it but actually that again that kind of first chapter has got a little bit of a spark to it. There is a little bit of a life. And now, whether it's because it gives Terrence Sticks the opportunity to describe an attractive lady in slightly more detail than he probably should in a children's book, that might be a possibility. But at the same time, <laughs> it kind of... I mean, even by even by target book um, standards, this is a short read. And, and you mm-hmm. know, he takes the time to get those kind of establishing details right so that from that first chapter... I don't know who would be reading this book that didn't know anything about Doctor Who, but let's imagine that kind of fantasy person exists. If you were reading this for the first time and you kind of came across that first chapter, it feels like it's got a little bit of heft to it. Like, there's a bit of an investment in describing the world, describing the TARDIS. Okay, sure, maybe slight overemphasis on just how brief Leela's costume is, but but still, <laughs> it gives us a shape of the world that isn't just relying completely on foreknowledge of the TV show or somebody who's seen it there is a there is I think in that first chapter an attempt to kind of build this world of the TARDIS before we start getting into the world of the P7E and the quest and all the rest of it so I think that works reasonably well trying to find the, the diamond in the rough I think that stuff is okay it's not massively politically correct I think it's fair to say um but it's also like the costume it's also brief so it doesn't particularly get in the way of the rest of the story
2: (laughs) yeah I agree and something else I appreciate about this book that Dix himself is obviously putting in is his explanation and expansion on the idea of regeneration yeah yeah because this book probably comes closer than any of the other books to addressing the theological implications of regeneration. Because he even at once, one point says in chapter 3 that regenerating more than a few times weakens the quote-unquote soul. And makes it clear why the Time Lords have a limit of 12 regenerations. Though obviously it's not a hard limit even though later stories and earlier stories are going to say, yep, you get 12 and that's it. It's like, well, no. And then more recent revelations have shown that there's not even that limit, that it could be everlasting regenerations, as it turns out in the case of the Doctor. But at this point, they don't know about all that, and the Doctor doesn't know about all of that. And the idea that... The regenerative process of a Time Lord is a combo of genetic coding and yoga, which is the most 70s thing ever. <laughs> yes, you can do a yoga pose and it takes you into a new body, obviously. Yeah, you can
1: shivosh whatever yourself to, to health. Yes, exactly. Are you saying
0: you wouldn't have wanted to see Peter Capaldi doing a sleeping dog before he turned into Jodie Whittaker? Because I don't believe that. <laughs>
2: well i don't know i think i i I think i'd rather have seen david tennant doing a sleeping dog
0: no no further questions your honor
2: yes (laughs) that's just personal preference but yes yeah it's interesting that dix is doing that because that rarely gets addressed and it has to be addressed because these minions have the ability to regenerate multiple multiple times and have done so for hundreds of thousands of years apparently and are still alive even though they're not really enjoying life all that much and i do love one big thing that he adds which is when tala regenerates and she's restored to youth and her first reaction is oh no not again
1: yeah i like that too
2: And the actress in question could not have acted that very well. In fact, she doesn't. She's kind of (laughs) terrible. She's just awful. There's no way she would have been the next companion. But to give that sort of emotional depth to the fact that these people, because they're on this damn everlasting quest, their lives are also everlasting. They had a larger crew before. They probably had hundreds of people in their crew. Now they're down to four. That interests the hell out of me. And yet we don't get much more of it, which leads us to some major plot holes in the story. So... Let's get into the negatives, shall we because <laughs> there are a few
0: just just before you do that, can I make sort of one observation which is something that I, I has only just occurred to me um, whilst, whilst you yeah. were talking there when you were talking about the way that um, regeneration functions and the whole thing about the the way that it weakens the soul it reminds me a huge amount of modern undead and I've never made yeah. that connection before. Um, and it's exactly the same thing It's this idea of kind of perpetual regeneration That just saps the soul Saps the will and drains it out of you And I think the way that sort of Dix expands a little bit on oh, We all love an expanding Dix um, Expands on that from um, The way that sort of Bob Baker And Dave Martin did it in the original And the way that he puts a little bit more meat in the bone there In terms of the novelization It, it just, as I say It just kind of recurred to me that it really It feels like a Kind of early draft of the same thing in Modern Undead. Modern Undead will make it much, much more explicit and push it far, far further forward than either the TV show or the novelization of Underworld will ever do. But it's the same yeah. kind of idea. So I think there's some credit due to both Baker and Martin and Terence Dix for kind of getting a jump because this is three years before for yeah. Modern Undead. The novelization is anyway, not the not the original broadcast. So yeah, they deserve some credit there for getting ahead of the game and finding ways into that kind of slightly more metaphysical or slightly more existential kind of approach towards regeneration. Now let's slag it off. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I also think that Terrence sticks to some degree, cribs this idea for The Five Doctors. Mm. I'm not going to give away how. For those of you out there who may not have ever seen that, or have read the book, but Terran Sticks is going to use the theme of immortality as a curse. That's not how you say it. <laughs> What's not how you say immortality. it?
0: Immortality! <laughs>
2: Well, yes, but, you know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> i just couldn't resist. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's going to be an ongoing theme, isn't it? And it's something that probably the current series is going to return to at some point because they kind of have to address the big old white elephant in the room that they have shoved in there. Oh, God. But yes, speaking of negatives, <laughs> what what did we not like?
1: Let's see. <laughs> Maybe this will be an interesting one to start off on. So you mentioned how there's supposed to be this Greek mythology integrated in. And this is the the time where I wish that we had Allison's help, because she's the one that always seems to know about the historical references and, and other things that I... Just it's not the kind of thing I can keep in my brain. But even I had the impression that this was like very thinly laid over the story and not like <laughs> very meaningfully integrated. But I don't know enough about the actual mythology to have gone back and double checked to see if that was the case. I just had this impression of like, oh, every now and then they mention this, but it's not really meaningfully integrated. Is that the case?
2: It is. Okay. Yeah, this, <laughs> this is not Jason and the Argonauts. It barely is mythological. It has... Barely Underworld. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And for that matter, the Underworld isn't even... If I remember correctly, J.G., and you'll have to correct me on this, the Underworld is not part of the original Jason myth either, is it?
0: Uh, no, no, it's not. I mean, everything here is kind of plundered. It's so like... Even the, like the, uh, Persephone, P7E, that's like... it's a clever reference. But like Persephone was was the daughter of zeus and demeter it had nothing to do with like a ship or a boat or or anything like that it's just like meant to be a clever clever reference that if you pick it up you go oh yeah so herrick and and, she ended
2: up in the underworld yeah
0: exactly it's it's people who are sort of faintly aware of the idea of of greek mythology and not really that well read in it I would suggest I don't know maybe maybe uh, Bob Baker and Dave Martins have classic degrees from um from St. Ed's University I, I I don't know maybe I'm I'm doubting it though on the basis of the strength of the script and I think it's a shame because I mean, Doctor Who's done mythology so, so, so many times, and you could find her like a really compelling take on Jason and the Argonauts. But like the race bank doesn't particularly map that well onto the Golden Fleece. The names are a bit similar, but yeah, it's not really a, it's not exactly a one-to-one layover. But it, even although it is also a very thinly skinned, like I said before, reversion it's uh, sort a of remade version of of kind of bits of different um, sort of Greek myth.
2: Yeah. And for that matter, I think the only golden fleece carryover is the fact that the race banks are made of pure gold, which makes absolutely no sense. Why would that be a good medium for genetic material?
0: I thought about that. I have an answer to that question. And it's a really bad one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But at least it's an answer which is more than either the script or the novelization bother to give us. Gold doesn't tarnish
2: oh
0: so if you were to store something within gold, the gold won't decay because we get decay throughout this story this is very common with turnistic stories uh, but we get we, we, you know we hear about the crystals which are cracking and blackened and all the rest of it we hear about the ship falling apart uh, we have all these kind of images of the you know the tunnels collapsing and all this kind of stuff but gold doesn't tarnish so it would it would last it would last essentially an indefinite length of time, which is, you know, I mean, they've been on this journey for what, 100,000 years or whatever it is. So it would last the course of their journey. Now, whether anything yeah. inside the gold would or not is a separate question, but that's the best possible <laughs> thing I could come up with. To say, why, why would it be gold? Yeah, because gold doesn't
1: target. I was going to mention that that gold, uh, chemistry-wise, it's one of the least reactive chemical elements that exists. That's why Carl Sagan and whoever chose to make that gold record yeah, with all of the yeah, information right. imprinted on it that they shot in the space. If you chuck something gold into the ground, it's going to be there. True. So, also, it's pretty and nice. I mean, I don't know how protective it would be of like stuff that's inside of it because, you know, gold's kind of malleable. Like, I agree, maybe you'd want to pick something else, but seems narratively nice and there's a little bit of science behind it. So,. Why not?
0: <laughs> I think we have already put considerably more thought into this <laughs> than, than either Bob Baker, Dave Martin, or Terrence Dix ever has.
1: I would love to somehow resurrect some of these people from the dead and be like, what do you think about the fact that we're taking this all so seriously now? I just would be so curious to know.
2: I, I think that if we did resurrect them, they would probably be annoyed with us for just asking about <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Who. <laughs> <laughs> I I would want to ask Carl Sagan why he thought that making a record in gold would be a good idea, given that you could only play it once, and because of the malleability of the gold, it would probably be damaged by any stylus that you ran over.
1: I don't know how that would work. Yeah, I mean, they must have done it for a reason. He was a scientist after all. They included
0: Um, playback instructions in the Voyager probes.
2: oh, oh.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, they included blueprints which would allow the construction of a mechanism which would allow the record to be played.
2: Hopefully not with the diamond stylus, because if they did that, they would definitely damage it. Uh, well, yeah, hopefully it won't come
0: back as V'ger either, but, uh, you know. <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. Oh, let's not think about that, shall we? Good God, it's bad enough we have the Oracle in this one. Oh, yeah, what's the point of the Oracle? Uh, to just have another crazy computer, and we've already had that so many damage.
1: Yeah, I wrote that down. I was like, okay, like an AI supervillain, very tropey. I don't really know what I'm supposed to be getting out of that.
0: Uh, All A, no I.
1: Sometimes I think about the historical context in which the the book was written, and I am like, oh, well, it's 1980. Was there some kind of panic about AI technology? Like, sometimes you can actually map those things on that you'll see, like, sort of a surgence of a certain kind of supervillain dependent on what socially was was a fear at that time. But I don't really know if that's the case here.
2: I think... it's a little more sinister than that though this is me attributing motives to Bob Baker and Dave Martin that I really shouldn't. I said earlier that this is cribbing a lot from Face of Evil and Face of Evil indeed has a megalomaniacal computer. So I, I think this is cribbing a lot from that though I don't know that it was intentional. It may just be that they came up with their own crappy script that just happens to have elements of a better script from the previous season in it.
0: I think it's worth mentioning, I know, I, I'm sure you guys mention this all the time when you're talking on the podcast, but it's it's just worth mentioning once again, Star Wars, yeah. you know, like super intelligent computers are just everywhere at this point in whether they're doing good or whether they're doing evil. They're just an inescapable feature of like, kind of like na- late 1970s, early 80s uh, sci-fi. And, and it's just... I, th- I my own sort of judgment call on it would just be, yeah, that's that was kind of around in the zeitgeist. But I very much doubt that there was more thought that, that went into it than that. It's just like it's the next kind of end of level monster. It's just a thing which is there. It's another obstacle to be overcome so that we can hit, you know, uh, the fourth episode running time. I think <laughs> maybe that's cynical.
2: Well, here's the interesting thing about that. Doing research into the production of the story, I found out that Star Wars was released a few months before they started production on this. For the longest time, I thought K-9, for instance, was somehow derived from R2-D2. And no, he's part of the same zeitgeist of having cute robot sidekicks, but he's not directly inspired by R2-D2. Now the megalomaniacal computer would have been inspired much more by 2001 space odyssey because i'm i'm re-watching space 1999 for my youtube channel that 70s review plug 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 and you get megalomaniacal computers in that series and yeah, it just seems to be a trope that goes through the 70s. So I don't think mm-hmm. it's necessarily a concern, Jenny. I think it's more just something that is very tropey yeah. for that time. So yeah, and it's definitely cliche by the time it appears on screen in 1978. It is woefully cliche by the time you get to a novelization written in 1980. Yeah.
0: Do we think the line that the Doctor has about it, I mean, there's that money box line, uh, which isn't in the original here, but do we think that line that the Doctor has about him being just another self-aggrandizing computer, do we think that's like a really clever bit of meta-commentary or do we think that's just a pathetic attempt to cover a really, really weak plot device?
2: I'm going to quote Star Trek, the original series, and say it is both and neither. <laughs> I I think it works both ways. I think it all depends on what mood you're in when you're reading it, because I thought of it as fairly clever, but I can also see, yeah, they're hanging a lampshade on this, but the fact that they're having to do so shows that they're well aware that they are plumbing the same goddamn well that they've plumbed several times in the last couple years in this show.
1: That's a really good point, though. I never thought, actually, that it could be unserious and I actually enjoy that reading I would prefer to think of the Doctor being like, this plot again, somewhat
0: meta-commentary.
1: I'm, I'm just going to choose to believe that that was the intent.
0: <laughs> well, I think if this had occurred in the next season, it would be unquestionable. Because uh, the moment oh, yeah. that we get into kind of like Douglas Adams' or, or script editing, then then the meta would be unquestionable. It's the fact that it occurs before that. And that's that's what makes me kind of raise the question. But I think, I mean, I think it works. I think the idea that the Doctor is just dismissing this as another bloody bit of technology he has to deal with is got
2: out of
0: control. <laughs> Bloody ridiculous. Why do I have to keep dealing with this? It's insane. And I kind of quite like that, but I, and I kind of quite like the fact that it occurs, yeah, prior to the point where the show is suddenly going to become extremely sort of self-aware.
2: Yeah, I do notice that Dix hasn't included his own trope for the Fourth Doctor, which is to have the Fourth Doctor sigh because he's been through something previously. <laughs> This is something that comes up again and again in these novelizations. The Doctor doesn't have one of those sighs this time, and I take that as a sign that, yeah, maybe he's not noticing just how played out and tepid the whole thing is, but it definitely feels that way to me. There are a couple of other issues I have, (laughs) and I have questions. I have so many questions, and I want to get your take on it because this is... This is a function of the original script, which Dix himself has decided not to unpack or try to explain at all, because by the time he gets to the end of this book, he just can't be bothered to do it. How are they going to keep several hundred people fed, watered, and so forth for 370 years? Well,
1: I thought the implication was that the Doctor replaced their little crystal drives or whatever, so it was only going to take them, like, not that long or something.
2: Well, the problem is Herrick, I think it's Herrick, who says that it's going to take 370 years for them to get to Minos 2.
1: I read that, but then... 370 years, it's nothing, is it, Captain? Unloading a series of strangely shaped objects, it picked up one or two spare parts for you, including a spare set of guidance crystals. So you won't need can anymore? Okay, so I guess that's not the implication then that that was going to help them on their their journey at all.
0: Okay, It'll yeah. I mean, trip.
1: question mark.
0: Uh... <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm again going to suggest that this is not hard sci-fi, and that the uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the practical realities. But I mean, how have they kept alive? This never mind taking more people on board. How have they managed to keep themselves alive over all yeah. this period of time? Where have, you know, we we don't. It's not. It's not a detail that. Bob Baker and Dave Martin have shown any interest in whatsoever. And it's certainly not one that Terrence Dix is going to pick up and suddenly suddenly start mentioning like food replicators or the organic bio gardens or something. Nobody gives a shit. And yeah. whilst, it's, whilst, it's, whilst it's unbelievably sweet that that's that's where your level of concern lies, my feeling is very strongly that nobody else cares. And and, and, and they don't. Yeah, like three hundred. <laughs> they explicitly say in the text of the book like whatever it is, three hundred and seven years or whatever it is. Oh, that that's nothing. We can do that. Yeah, you've got a hundred thousand years, probably surviving a little more than moss and cress. And so good luck to you.
1: I mean, that's like a whole bunch of new people, right? Just think of all of like mm-hmm. the new sex that they can have. They've just been fucking each other, oh, like girl. the same five people. I don't for know if you can
0: survive on sex. years. No. Or I mean, I'm willing like to try. Don't get me wrong, but I don't know that that's a good survival technique.
2: Oh, you mean as far as making new trogs? that are going to be in that ship. Yeah, well, well there's they'll that just too. eat them. It'll... Oh,
0: shit! They're, yeah, they're, they're going to survive in and Green. That's the answer. Oh, yes, it's going to be Soylent all Jonathan
2: Green. Swift. It's yeah, definitely Soylent Green. That's you. an idea. Good Solved. Lord. Next. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have been eating rock this whole time, apparently. That's true. Oh, by true. the way, J.G., I meant <laughs> to ask you, in Chapter 7, they said that the inhabitants of Aberdeen eat... Tons of, what, what was the line? It's don't eat Rock rocket, Aberdeen. Exposed to radiation and live because of it or something along those lines. It was because I have it in my notes. We need to ask JG about this. No,
0: <laughs> this, this is my lone piece of research for this episode of the podcast. So I, <laughs> I hope you appreciate all the hard work that I have done in binging a few random facts. And the what? answer is, I don't know. Um, but it might be true so um the the the, my extremely detailed knowledge of radioactivity which almost exclusively comes from the tv show chernobyl um (laughs) has led me to a chart which i found which has got like different levels of uh radioactive exposure now because it's the sort of unbelievable racism that you always get towards the Scottish people, nobody seems to actually have any information on Aberdeen. However, there is an annual radiation dose for people in Cornwall for some reason. I don't know. Really? I wasn't aware that... Yeah, really. It's it's um, it's on the British government's website. It's on gov.uk. Um, and it compares different levels of radiation. Now... For an average dental x-ray, which is next to nothing, and then you've got a nuclear power station, apparently you get 0.18 MSVs, whatever the fuck that is, um, (laughs) radioactive things. You get 0.18 radioactive things if you work in a nuclear power station. And if you live in Cornwall, uh, you get 6.9 radioactive things. So Cornwall is substantially more radioactive ...than Why? a nuclear power station. So it's reasonable to assume that that's probably true of Aberdeen as well. It is true that Aberdeen is built on, on, on radioactive granite. And I have oh. seen a thing which which says that if Aberdeen was about five miles north, it would be a, a mo- much more serious concern. But the actual rock that Aberdeen is built on is solid, so it doesn't oh. leak... Uh, it's it's it, it, most of the radiation comes from on, but it's actually locked into the rocks so it doesn't leak out, so it doesn't really affect anything, whereas if it was a few miles up the road it might be a different story so I hope you appreciate my research that's really as I far do. as it's going everything else would just be unmitigated disastrous opinions that I've
2: thought of suddenly <laughs> Well, you see, again we have put more thought into this than Bob Baker and Dave Martin did especially oh, yes. when it comes to radiation when they did The Hand of Fear Anyway, uh was there anything else that we liked or disliked about this book before we head into the Goodreads opinions?
1: You know, I can I can end on some positives. Yes, please. I felt that the Trog Rebellion was more organic, more believable than the rebellion that happened in the Sunmakers, which is all yes. very sudden and like, oh, we are free, let's do it. And I I actually found that society far, well, I don't know, in some ways more repressive. I guess this one is pretty oppressive as well, but th- this somehow seemed to come about more organically, and I was like, yeah, I'm on board with this one. I also liked that Herrick is a redeemed character. You know, at the Ooh. beginning he seems like he's kind of a hothead, and you you're supposed to not like him, but then at the end he has that sort of like Rambo scene where he's like, I'm gonna go down and fight, and he's like laughing maniacally, you know, get some <laughs> and. And up yours and all of that. And I'm like, well, this is fun. I I like that Dix or whoever it was cared enough to give him a little bit of a redemption arc, even if he's not quite a dynamic character. I don't think he became less of a hothead, but at least his, his nature was used for something purposeful. And then finally, I, even though I do think I, I agree that, and I like this, that phrase workaday that, that you've been using, that this is a more workaday kind of bit of fiction. There is some level of care with this writing still, specifically in the part where they're introducing the, the trogs. that at first they're talking about the spaceship going down like a dart. And then that metaphor or simile, I guess, is continued with dart into an anthill. And then the trogs as the ants. And even though know, there's just a few small words, I thought, you know, this is a level of care and intentionality with this prose that is probably not common for for these books. And Dix cares. Dix, he cares. So, you know, I was like, this is nice. Um, thank you, Dix, for for being cool. Those are my my positives.
2: And I also appreciate the fact that he left in the line, "Whatever blows can be made to suck." <laughs> <laughs> which is equally true of the story
1: <laughs> that is the second time blow, that, that i
2: read yes. something
1: like that would this is just one of like the gas reversal i was writing down these tropes i was like oh good we have tunnels a crusher and the gas reversal like these are just the things that come up again and again in these books that i think are so funny also that motherfucking sonic screwdriver i was like damn where can i get me one of those those are just <laughs>
2: useful tools oh, look it's got three settings and he doesn't use it nearly as much in the story as he does later. So oh. trust me, by the time we get to the new series, it's it's essentially the Doctor Who equivalent of a phaser.
1: If there's ever a Doctor Who pop-up bar, they really better make a cocktail called the Sonic
2: Screwdriver. They have. Yes! They have. And they're lovely. They are absolutely <laughs> lovely. But Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of alcohol, shall we go to Goodreads? <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice segue. What, what are you suggesting about the fine quality of reviewing that takes oh, place on, on Goodreads,
2: Duddy? Nothing at all, except I know for a fact that I require alcohol to get through some of these books, so I would not be surprised if some of our readers don't do the same. For
0: our podcasters.
2: Yes, exactly. As we always do. Let's go to Goodreads dot com for online reviews of the book written by other readers drinking alcohol or otherwise, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.12, somewhat lower than our previous book. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives it three stars and says, Not one of the TV stories I remember very well, but this book is okay. Again, lots of tunnels and of corridors to run down another computer gone rogue, so not the most inventive story plot. Yes, that is an understatement. Also in our Goodreads group, Michael gives it two stars and says one of the few Tom Louise-era target books I had in my collection simply because I kept missing it on my local PBS station. Given the unlimited budget of my imagination and the lack of dodgy CSO effects, I found myself liking it a good bit back in the day. Years later, I've finally seen the story and was whelmed by it. <laughs> didn't love it, didn't hate it. It's just kind of there. The adaptation is better than I remembered. It kind of feels like Vix has taken a bit more interest or had a bit more time than usual. Maybe that's just the sum-up-the-back-story backstory prolog talking, or this one is actually better than I recall. The final episode feels fairly condensed on the printed page, possibly because it's just so many battles between various parties that can be easily summed up in a paragraph or two. I can't help but feel like this one takes one of the themes of classic Star Trek with a computer that is bent upon keeping and maintaining its power and status within a society that seems to be stuck in neutral. Indeed, the Doctor pulls his own version of Captain Kirk, using the illogic logic to defeat said computer in the final pages, though in this case it's the Doctor pulling the old switch, the MacGuffin trick, instead. And finally, Jack rates it three stars and says, Whilst this isn't the most amazing Doctor Who story, it is much better than its reputation would have you believe. When watching the TV episodes, I found the special effects even more jarring than the earlier serial here. The Autons. <laughs> Boy, howdy. And although I don't usually mind, such things, they really were distractingly bad at some points, so this is why many say it's a bad serial. The novelization doesn't suffer from this problem, of course, which is why I found it a lot more enjoyable and could appreciate the plot. There are some neat sci-fi concepts in this book, like meteors clumping around a spaceship until it becomes the center of a planet, or a semi-immortal crew who've been turning back their biological clocks for 100,000 years and have lost all will to live, except for the concept of the quest, Overall, I preferred the parts set on the spaceship more than the parts after they land, but I did appreciate, as always, the relationship between Leela and the Doctor as they were exploring the underworld. I'd recommend this book to anyone who wants to like the TV serial but can't get past the overuse of old-style CSO. It's a decent story and worth giving a second chance. And Jenny, just so you know, I was excited at first when I found the reviews on Goodreads. I found a review written in Japanese for this book. Oh, But then I translated it, and it was essentially just a synopsis of the story. So I didn't include it. So (laughs) there we are. So, Jenny, out of five stars, how many stars would you give this book?
1: At first, I had written down four out of five, because I thought that I you know, I liked it. I like how focused it is compared to some of the other stories. But now I'm thinking that maybe that focus is actually less intentional and more as we've been talking about uh, just a lack of engagement or a lack of kind of taking this seriously. So I think I might go down to a 3.5 out of 5, but still better than the majority of things I've read. So, still enjoyed it. I, I still liked it. I would be interested in this world. Yeah. Okay.
2: And JG?
0: It's a difficult one to gauge because it is one where it's very hard to just completely put aside, like, the, the, the TV episodes. Like, I, who was it? I think it was one of the early reviews on Goodreads that you read out. Somebody said that they were. it was not one of the TV shows that they remembered. Oh, I've never been so envious of somebody in my whole life. Oh, God, <laughs> if only I could not remember these TV episodes. So... I think I'm gonna go for two point two five out of five just to be awkward i I think purely even by Terence Stlick's own standards, I don't really know I, I like the prologue and that first chapter aside um I don't know that there's a lot that gets beyond kind of functional, obviously it's held back by the the nature of the original script, but I still feel that you could have put a little bit more life into it that maybe a little bit more detail could have been given out and like he mentioned the trogs, and never used the wild thing joke once so that's yeah that's so uh, yeah <laughs> 2.25 out of five
2: okay and i would have to agree i am giving this also a 2.25 mainly because it really isn't dick's best work you can tell he's working to a deadline you can kind of feel the sheer animosity he has towards bob baker and dave martin scripts and you can see him going oh yet another one. Not quite to the same degree as his novelization of The Invisible Enemy, because there, you could really tell through the prose, that he's just like, oh god, okay, just give me my paycheck, I'm done with these fellows. That being said, that prologue is a fine piece of writing. Not great, but definitely fine. I really wish he'd gone into more detail. I appreciate the detail he goes into about regenerations. It's probably the closest we ever get to some discussion of the philosophical and theological implications of being able to reinvent yourself literally every so often. But it could have gone even further. It does go further, come to think of it, than the original televised version, because we do find out say, through Tala's reaction to her regeneration, how tired they are of doing this for so long. But by the time you get to the end of the book, you're pretty tired of it, too. So, 2.25. Well, thank you both, and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we finish this season of All Dicks, All the Time, with Terrence Dicks' novelization of The Invasion of Time. JG, how would we find your podcast?
0: Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, all the usual places, uh, we are talking who to you, and uh, yeah, whatever podcast you use, I'm, I'm sure we'll probably crop up.
2: Fantastic. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in Word with no spaces. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter, we're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Bye. See